So Martin, I um, I met you in philosophy department, and I'm wondering, you know, you've you've been you've undertaken a very long philosophical journey. I'm wondering how now you would define what philosophy actually is, or what the task mm. of philosophy is, mm. and especially given that definition, the ways that's consistent or inconsistent with Buddha's practice. Yeah, look, it's a great question, um, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and it can be answered in multiple ways, but I have I have got a little bit of a spiel uh, with which I, I hope I can answer it. And I would say that defined most broadly, philosophy for me is basically an inquiry into the nature and perhaps the true nature of reality and embodied existence. And for me, that inquiry is wholly consistent and in some sense coterminous with my idea of Buddhist practice. Um, which is to say they're each equally forms of transcendental and reflexive thematizing of the same inquiry, which is to say, why, why does it mean what it does? Why does that very question mean what it does? How does it mean that? And given the sense in which there's no other more important human endeavor. So for me, both with regard to philosophy and Buddhist practice, if I could make this, this inquiry the center of my existence, it's hard to see what else could replace it. There are close candidates, including creative, aesthetic, and amorous experience. But at a certain point, all these at best might converge. So the satisfactions of philosophy and Buddhist practice, for me, when they occur, seem the most redemptive and irreplaceable modes of being. And they include affective as well as cognitive satisfactions. I'm not sure what else life would really be for. And there need be no certain telic fulfillment in it as such. I don't expect myself or anyone to actually become, for example, a recognizably enlightened Buddha. I take it that the very notion is in a sense entirely empty of this worldly content. As an absolute, it means nothing at all. But the very possibility and all that it theorizes of how to get there seems to me both compelling and worth the possible repudiation of all that the inquiry has demanded. That might indeed even be its ulterior purpose, to entirely surrender every possible sense of ever knowing anything of servitude or its possession, and to finally be free in that. So that's that's my own little kind of you know programmatic response to the question, um, and and it, it's it's more confirmed after having done six years of, of a PhD degree. So I don't know whether you resonate with that or in what ways you do. Well, let me press um, you a little bit on that. Are you mm. saying that really, what it all boils down to, in both cases, mm. Buddhist practice and in the task of philosophy? You're trying to understand the nature of reality, but not merely as a, some kind of abstract intellectual process, but as something which is relevant to your everyday experience as an embodied human being. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I the think philosophical position of that is that abstract intellectual experience is daily, everyday life. I mean, I don't actually, you know, but that is, I think, a specifically philosophical position um, rather than, I suppose, a secular one or, or, or every, you know, a kind of everyday one. And I'd also like to distinguish that from Buddhism as a religion and what it socioculturally, historically means. Obviously, I think religion has got very, very different functions for social groups um, that philosophy doesn't. I think philosophy is, in that sense, an elitist activity. But for me, what Buddhism ultimately means and what philosophy means is essentially the same thing. Is there a sense with that kind of outlook that mm. there is uh, some something about ordinary human life, let's say a non-philosophical mm. approach to life, which mm. has that basically wrong, i.e. there's a, a concealing, to use a Heideggerian term, or some kind of uh, 
something which prevents us from actually understanding or apprehending or yeah. getting closer to the reality as it actually is. Yeah, I mean, in a way that plays into the interesting difference between revisionary metaphysics and descriptive metaphysics. And I, th- I think Buddhism is classically, along with many kind of Western um, metaphysical kinds of systems, a revisionary way of looking at the world and looking at life per se. At the so you know, but I'm very concerned about philosophy and Buddhism itself taking a kind of an exclusive position because I actually see that the role of philosophy vis-a-vis so-called ordinary life or what we can call a pre-theoretical attitude is dialectic and I think philosophers as much as Buddhist practitioners like serious meditators learn from so-called everyday life uh, as much as everyday life could, could conceivably learn from philosophical inquiry and I think ideally it's a, it's a dialectical process and for me Personally, obviously, and I, I suppose that you agree with this, there's no way in which meditative inquiry and philosophical conceptual inquiry cannot, can go ahead without the kinds of input, the sheer existential, contingent, difficult, um, you know, uh, pre-essential input of, of the, the slings and arrows of everyday life. Um, they're completely necessary to each other, and I think, I think the best philosophy and indeed the best Buddhist teachings recognize that. So that implies a rather deep pragmatism there, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think Buddhism would be something that could be most easily understood as a form of pragmatism or empiricism, um, which is why I think it doesn't. It's not in conflict with a lot of classical Western metaphysics in that regard. Whether what it's about or, science? Or humor. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would argue that those sorts of aims. I mean, maybe take away the pragmatic element a little bit. But, Certainly, mm. the search for what reality actually is, yeah. be it biological or in terms of physics or whatever else, mm. Mm. that that basic aspiration is also the scientific aspiration. So, does that imply that science, as you know, as as a task that one might be engaged mm. in, is mm. basically oriented in a similar kind of way, or is there something different about science compared to philosophy and Buddhist practice? Yeah, look, again, a really good question. It actually preempts one of our later questions, um, so I might even leave it until a bit later on. But what I'll quickly say is that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, insofar as science is essentially dealing with, you know, the status of, 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 of physical causation and, um, you know, ontology, uh, it's not necessarily exclusive with a Buddhist metaphysics, which is essentially, uh, on the one hand, a metaphysical project, um, which, in, at least in one of its major forms of Madhyamaka, is is metaphysically realist. Um, and um, by the same token, Buddhism is dealing with something which is not a purely physical causal understanding of the universe. It's dealing with the nature of the human mind, which I think we can see science in many ways lacks um, a full and rigorous program for. Um, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people now are talking about the interface between neuroscience and cognitive science and Buddhist meditation and so on. And that's very, very much a nascent field. Uh, so why Buddhism should need to exclude um, scientific ontological theory is unclear. And I think someone like the Dalai Lama is very open in saying, yeah, we, we can learn an awful lot from that. By the same token, Western cognitive science has got an awful lot to learn from various kinds of um, Buddhist phenomenological modalities. Um, so again, I think it's a compatible and non-exclusive relationship. But, but I've said a little bit more about that later on. So look, what I'm thinking of, um, unless you want to respond to that, is to go back to your own question uh, or focus on meditation. Can I, can I ask you? Or? Yeah, please do. Yep. Okay, so 
my first question for you, Tobe, is um, how has your experience of meditation confirmed or disconfirmed, or to what degree, the major proposals of Buddhist metaphysics, which I suppose plays into your last question as well? Uh, yes, it's a very interesting question, and the short answer is yes, confirmed, you know, with a big tick. Mm. Uh-huh. In, in a way which uh, I would have to say was unexpected. So for many years I, I considered myself more of a philosopher than a Buddhist. In fact, mm. there was a time when I really couldn't handle the Buddha, having the identity of a Buddhist. It was, mm. um, at university, for example, I was president of the Buddhist society. And I had mm. to speak on behalf of the tradition of Buddhism at mm. various points. And there's a certain point where that just became contradictory to how how my understanding was, which was much more open-ended, you know, so I mm. felt like I was as much an Aristotelian or a Heideggerian or a Nietzschean as I was Neat. a Buddhist. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. these different things are informing me, and yet there's something about the culture of it all where you kind of have to sign up and with it, I am a Buddhist. So that's yeah. how it was when I was more of in a kind of philosophical space. Mm-hmm. But since leaving the, uh, the university system, Mm. and um, having a bit more space to actually do some more serious meditation, I found rather unexpectedly that um, a lot of the things that I was working on in Buddhist philosophy Mm. did actually play out to be extraordinarily helpful in, I suppose, introducing me to what, you know, let's, let's just call it the interaction between phenomenal reality and my mind. Mm-hmm. which is what it all leads towards. So there's some point where the conceptual uh, or theoretical or intellectual elements, the philosophical elements, have to lead into an experience of reality as it is. Sure. And yeah. having, and I'm not claiming to have you know deep realizations, but the realizations that I have found mm. are strikingly in accord with exactly what the Buddhist philosophers are saying. And these are particularly things sure. around dependence, causation, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. emptiness. Right, right. Um, okay, I, can I just quickly break in there? Um, I, I, I suppose I expected to hear that from you because I think it is, um, you know, it is something which can be justified in, 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 and has been kind of you know, claimed by all of the great practitioners. But what about, would you say that there were any particular Buddhist posits that that you've struggled with in meditation. I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm thinking much more about something like non-self, um, which for me actually remains a, a bit of a bone of contention now um, between between the theory and the practice. Um, and that's something maybe we could really talk about. I mean, I'm you know I, I think that there is a serious, ongoing, major philosophical dispute there between the Hindu and the Buddhist schools, um, and their various Western uh, configurations as well. So could you be more specific about any of the particular Buddhist posits that you've, that you've well, kind of dealt with? Actually, um, the, the thing that I really struggled with as a philosopher were the more idealist elements of Buddhist thinking, sure. Yogacharan elements. Sure. And one of the funny things is that once I stepped out of the philosophy department mm. and into a more yogic space, I yeah. found the more idealist claims were those which kind of well, let me rephrase that. I found I was stepping into mm. um, meditational or phenomenological experiences, which had a very idealist character about them. And because why would you? How would you say that was the case? Well, to to really simplify something like Yogacara, 
there's kind of a claim that you know everything is the mind, yeah. including materiality, yeah, phenomenal things, things like the body. Now, mm. I mean, I just found this completely absurd and incoherent as a mm. philosophical view, right? Mm. Because uh, hey, were you also sort of comparing that to your understanding of Berkeley or, or, or Western idealism? Well, as certainly well, as or? a philosopher, yeah. I mean, mm. you mm. know, I, I couldn't think of a kind of a more idiotic so, philosophy. So you also rejected Berkeley and, and presumably Hegelian idealism as well? Well, actually, towards the end um, of all of that period, I, I was reading a lot of Hegel. Yeah. And I was trying to think through Hegelian idealism and finding right. it kind of as an interesting counterpoint. Sure. But as a whole, you know, I... I had firmly rejected all forms of idealism because, mm -hmm. you know, you have um, the empirical facts of the matter continually bumping up against you. Indeed, yeah. But in, in any case, I found that the, the, the glimpses of realisation that, that I mm -hmm. had in the, in the period after had a mm -hmm. very idealist flavour about them. And I was like, wow. Can, can I just be a little bit of a devil's advocate in response to that and, and sure. say, isn't that fairly kind of uh, to be expected when you're actually doing meditation as such and focusing on the nature of consciousness and sitting in a quiet, peaceful room somewhere where you're not being bothered and not being, you know, kind of attacked by wild tigers. And you can indeed look at... Because I've, I've, I've gone through the same kind of process as, you, as you're describing. Um, once you're very, very deeply immersed in deep meditation, then it's very easy to slip into a kind of idealist conception um, of reality and as you said, though, it usually gets qualified by bumping up against the hard facts of, of, of scientific and other truth, no? So isn't that just, just a kind of like occupational side effect of what, of what your meditation was allowing you to experience? Uh, no, because I suppose that we're talking about bumping up against the tiger. Mm, In other words, right. it's about what happens when you step out of meditation and you're dealing with phenomenal things which you took to be so absolutely solid. And yeah and determining in a kind of material way or a causal way and you're saying actually these are exactly as these crazy masters might suggest mere appearances mm. now that's something I would right. never countenance as a philosopher but I had certain glimpses of and you know I, I can't say I'm realized enough to remain in that place but I'm gonna have to I'm sorry I'm gonna have to press you a little bit further on that in what sense in what sense could could your potential experience of a 10-ton truck coming straight at you on the, on the major highway give you any kind of confirmation of idealistic premises of, of, of an ultimately mental constitution of the universe? I mean, how, how does that cash out? Well, how, how, are you, how are you really getting that kind of sense of, of potential reality? Uh, I mean, let's just, let's just take a step back. Okay. Maybe Barclay asserts this. I don't think the Yogacharans are really asserting that the heaviness and the kind of physics of the truck mm -hmm. isn't isn't going to kind of tear your body apart if you Good stand point. in front of it. Good right. point. Y yoga are often mischaracterized in that way, and I think that's yes, one of the problems point. is you know it's too easy to refute an idealism by suggesting that all idealists are denying physicality completely. Great point. Great point. They're yeah. not. They're talking about the relationship between physicality and consciousness. And they're saying okay. consciousness is far more operative and functional in constituting empirical reality than we tend to assume. So as far as... But that's, okay, but that's fine, but Madhyamaka would agree with that as well. But in that case, what is the actual metaphysical um, status of external reality, physical reality, then, in that case? 
Well, I mean, my, my Jamaica would also agree that, that, that the so-called external world is, is largely a conceptual construct. Yeah. But then it would it would also leave that last margin of something of of, of, of ontological you know dignity to the nature of of you know sheer sheer ontology sheer existence. Um, and I see I'm I'm unable to let that go. I, I don't see where someone can really let that go if they're being honest about about their own experience. And it seems it seems like you too are not able to completely surrender that as well. No, no. I mean, look. In the end, I think um, the Madhyamikas give a more coherent account of it. Okay. That, right. Okay. So I'm not. Uh, all I'm saying is that I've had certain experiences which, I suppose, really emphasised the um, the much larger role, let's call it, of consciousness in constituting phenomenal things. Okay. In a way that the Buddhists really crap on about a lot, and which I find sure. have found as a philosopher, a bit, you know, it's a bit embellished yeah. or something. But what, what all I'm saying is, actually, I found mm. this to be truer in reality than I had assumed. And okay. Okay. Look, I'm I'm just being a bit a bit um, hard in this process because I actually do want to I do want us to ultimately have our cards on the table and be a little bit clear about where we actually stand on some of these things. Sure. And I'm going to just I'm going to just throw this back at you and say okay in that sense then having you having answered my first question we still remain both basically Majamakans, um, even though we appreciate the the Yogacara and you know philosophical dimensions of of phenomenology vis a vis Buddhist meditation practice Is, would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I okay. spent years studying Madhyamika. Uh, I don't think they're as far apart as. Uh, some philosophers might make out, and maybe also sure. some, you know, within the context of Tibetan Vajrayana, uh, you know, Madhyamika is considered the highest view, and Yogacara mm. is kind of subordinate. Yeah, I think, you know, my own opinion is that they're closer together than one might assume. But yeah, if really pressed, and in a, in a mm. especially in a dialogue, so I'm talking with mm. you about these sorts mm. of things, mm. for mm. sure, uh, Madhyamika is kind of far more coherent. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I might just quickly suggest then that I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to Garfield's most recent sort of framing of this of this very question, which is to say that the Yogacara is perfectly um, valid and sound as as essentially a phenomenological uh, theory and analysis of of human consciousness and self consciousness. Um, but when it comes to metaphysical statements about you know the the, the ontology of of existence and of the of the person in the universe, the Majamaka um, is dealing with that in a in a different and more rigorous way. And I think I think that's a pretty fair summation. I, I pretty much buy that that general line. So um, anyway, we, we've actually covered quite a lot of quick territory um, in that. Mm. Um, and it actually it might even segue into into your second question. So Martin, um, I want to ask you, given some conversations we've had in the past, mm. perhaps I'm wrong, but I have you situated a little bit as someone who thinks Buddhism should get with the times. You know, it should be a, a tradition which accepts all of the advances of modernity or late modernity. Some of them, perhaps, yeah. So I suppose the question then is, how should Buddhism be situated in in our times, in the 21st century? Should it be a kind of progressive or reformist venture of lopping off all the bits which don't fit, and so making Buddhism fit with modernity, 
and that implies, I suppose, secularism and science and all those sorts of things, maybe capitalism, mm. or should mm. it be a, a far more conservative venture of sort of mm. looking back to ancient truths, ancient practices and horizons and so forth, and bringing them into the present, mm. maybe as a means of disrupting some of the assumptions of the present. So to really, mm. to paraphrase that, should the contemporary Buddhist practitioner be disrupting modernity with Buddhism, or mm. disrupting Buddhism with modernity? Look, Toby, it's an excellent question, but I'm afraid that I don't, I don't see it as an either-or. Um, I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. Um, generally speaking, I think there's specific things that, that are relevant. But um, So, yeah, my, my little spiel of an answer would be to say that I don't see why a so-called modernizing Buddhist project um, and a preservational one, which are revisionary in both senses, should be mutually exclusive projects. Um, indeed, it has surely always been the same in any epoch. A Buddhist hermeneutics has always required its being made true in every period it has grown, shifted in direction, taken on new guises. It should be no different now. Similarly, it, was, um, it has culturally disrupted those elements of the culture that were inherently ripe for that disruption, whether it was in China or, or Central Asia or Japan and so on. And I think the point here is really Heideggerian, as you sort of were suggesting before. The authentic grasping of the truth of a dimension of being, indeed of truth or dharma as such, requires that it not be a mere reproduction and inauthentic repetition of a mere linguistic signification. It means nothing where it has not been authentically engaged. Not as a static datum, but as a literally novel discovery entailing all of the context-specific means by which that truth is apprehended. So, I mean, you know, I think Buddhist um, uh, thinking and Buddhist practice is in that sense ultimately necessarily contingent. And, and that may in turn well entail new nuances, means of transmission, linguistic forms for that new truth. And that happens on both the individual and collective subjective and objective levels. It would seem by the same token that where there is that authentic, um, when, when that process is authentic, then the disruption of both a blinkered modernity as well as an ossified and inauthentic repetition of dead Buddhist forms is also constitutive of the acquisition of truth. And it might well be that where the same truth, for example, of non-self or emptiness is apprehended, then its status as the same is also put into question. For example, is shunyata now as a conceptual posit as a culturally conditioned posit, what it was for Nagarjuna in the second century. We had no means of knowing. But I suggest that our status as historically finite and culturally determined beings suggests that it isn't, and that each recreation of the wheel entails, if not the construction of a different version of wheel, then certainly a different way of constructing it. Um, so that's my real <laughs> answer to that, to that question. Um, well, let me pick you up on that. So I totally agree with what you're saying in that whatever understanding or realization takes place must necessarily take place in lieu of whatever conditions happen to be there. Yeah. So if you're... But virtue of those conditions, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be part of what you're experiencing, right? So if you're meditating in 10th century northern India or you're meditating mm. in 21st century Berlin, mm. the content of your phenomenal experience is going to be different because one's in late modernity and one's in ancient India or medieval yeah. India. Yeah. So I take that point, but I still okay. I feel like maybe there's a slight avoidance of um, of the issues at stake in that. Mm. Let's take the person in Berlin, the German, the German in Berlin, doing yeah. the meditation. Now, yeah. the question is, does that person have to reject some of the fundamental assumptions of modernity 
in order to successfully gain insight into the nature of reality? Uh, um, well, straight up, no. I, I really don't think so. Um, again, I think it's a little bit... Actually, this does lead directly into your third question, but I think, again, it's a bit of a false dichotomy. I mean, I think also there's room for a genuine, um, you know, individual individualism um, regarding these things. Obviously, some people are going to have some phases of focus, and, and, then, and that, that will change on the individual level as well. I mean, I can certainly say for myself that 10 years ago, I was much, much more focused on what we could traditionally call religious structures and epistemic uh, kinds of kinds of regimes in a way that I'm not so focused anymore, which is not to to preclude them. Um, I just think that there are different, you know, there there are different stages of the whole process. Um, and the 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 meditator in Berlin, look, I mean, the meditator might be a cognitive scientist, might be a far out Advaitist non dualist, and they will be bringing whatever kinds of um, personal riches they have to that to that table, and I, I just think that's how it works out. And interestingly enough, that they might, as as you described just earlier on, they might end up undergoing quite a serious reversal of their expectations. And yes, they might well end up rejecting certain features of modernity and not others. On the other hand, they might take on other features. I mean, I can say that I've I've been really really willing as a, as a philosophical thought experiment to totally reverse all of my former sacred cows regarding Buddhists, you know, the whole Buddhist worldview. And that's been an incredibly enriching process. Um, to me, it sounds yeah. like then you're adopting more modernist suppositions as a kind of dialectic against more ancient or Buddhistic religious I, I don't think I can really even try to adopt them. I mean, I, I've, I've been, you know, raised and, and, and acculturated by a certain kind of, um, you know, um, Po, you know, secular or indeed post-secular rational society because I actually grew up around a lot of the counterculture in Australia during the 80s um, where people were doing things like a lot of Hindu and Buddhist meditation. There were a lot of sannyasins around me. It was much, much more natural for me to grow up reading Ramana Maharshi and Krishnamurti than to read Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking, for example. Um, you know, I've, my, my native worldview is Eastern, okay? And what happened as an adult was that I, uh, you know, I've, I've, some of that has come aground. I've, I realized that that ship won't necessarily take you as far as you need to go. By the same token, do I think that most of the presuppositions of Western scientific or scientific modernity are adequate to the same job? No, certainly not. But I, I, I am very, very much more wary of the kind of magical thinking that a lot of traditional Buddhist Buddhism and indeed Western Buddhism really takes as the sole currency for both discussing and theorizing the future of a Buddhist philosophical worldview. And I think that it's incumbent on people like ourselves or people who experience some kind of sense of philosophical responsibility to this very question to be honest about that. And, um, you know, I think there are problems, uh, theoretically speaking, about some of the Buddhist mainstream transmission. Um, and by the same token, I think that we have incredible resources from the Western academic um, world and the Western philosophical world to bring to them. Um, yeah, so that would be my, my overall summation. Well, responding to that, I mean, it's maybe leading into the next question a little bit, which we can get to mm. in a moment. But it sounds mm. to me like what you're saying, and this speaks to maybe the relationship between modernity and previous epochs, medieval mm. epochs, some of the things you think might be problematic 
are those which, well, maybe I'll let you speak them. What What are the things that um, that people might be doing in mm. contemporary forms of Buddhist practice, traditional forms, mm. which you think mm-hmm. are actually fundamentally false or? Um, well, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't. I definitely living. wouldn't say that. You see, I wouldn't say anything's fundamentally false. I mean, that would be both presumptuous and 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 probably wrong. Um, it, it's not so much the forms. I mean, I think I think I think the great strength, and this is a bit of a truism these days of Buddhism, is that it has a technique, namely meditative self-reflexive practice, uh, which I'd like to actually go into a bit more with you later on, um, which is really um, unparalleled. I mean, to me, you know, meditative, you know, serious, engaged, long-term, disciplined meditative practice is the tool um, for for really engaging any of this in any kind of serious way. And my more more the concern would much more so be with the structures of thinking, the structures of thought, the conceptual cognitive maps, which which a lot of mainstream Buddhism still takes as for granted as the only essentially you know, the conceptual uh, truisms to hold on to. So I think the whole debate around karma and rebirth is fascinating because there is clearly a problem there now. It's not just a, a matter of preference. There is a fundamental philosophical schism going on between whether or not it's feasible to sustain um, uh, the kind of heuristic belief in karma as, as in fact, the glue, you know, the, the moral causal glue of the universe, frankly, in, in some of its guises, uh, with a Western rational understanding of, of how things actually work. There, there is a serious causal, um, you know, vacuum there. But, you know, how, how we can explain the relationship between, between um, a, a mechanistic causal framework for action and its moral normative effects across a, an apparent trans-lifetime universal framework uh, and not take that, as I do now, as essentially a form of rhetorical or heuristic edification. I mean, I, I, I can't see how anyone now can rationally hold the proposition of karma to be anything more than a pre-modern, essentially medieval form of religious, um, pedagogical, popular um, inculcation of, of, of other much more interesting and rigorously defensible metaphysical well, propositions. I want to pick you up on that. Uh, which, is not, which is not to say that one rejects karma, but, but to simply wander around and think that that's literally what's going on as, as a metaphysical truth is to me like deeply irresponsible. And it certainly can't answer, answer uh, a, to a lot of the serious ethical problems we have these days. And yet a lot of mainstream Buddhism still does that. And, and, and then it reverts to a, a real cop-out, which is to say that, you know, the way it works is ultimately um, inaccessible knowledge to us ordinary worldlings who have to become enlightened before we can even begin to think about its possible truth. Well, that's, I don't think that's, no, I don't think that's, that's good the, enough. That's the exact issue. Right. And this, is, this gets maybe to the heart of, of what I'm trying to get at with this question of modernity. Because at, at the heart of it is an epistemological question about what counts as true knowledge or knowledge about reality which we can take to be veridical. Mm. And you used yourself the word rationalistic. Mm. And certainly there are deeply rationalistic elements in Buddhism per se and in Buddhist thinking, definitely. Mm. Mm. But there are many other aspects which are not rationalistic. Sure, and which are sure. predicated on a different epistemic vantage point which uh, sure no denial of that at all so that vantage point which let's just call it yogic insight and shabda 
pramana, yeah, you know, sure. verbal testimony, that actually plays a very robust role in in the Buddhist outlook. Of course now, it does. I could agree with that more. So if, if but, you're rejecting that and you're saying, well, actually... No, 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 I'm not, I'm not actually rejecting it. I'm saying it has to be epistemologically situated in a much more consciously um, and, and, you know, epistemically responsible way. There's, there's a perfectly legitimate place for what we could, what I would summarize as, as the religious, that religious dimension of transrational, transcognitive, meditative, epistemic access. I'm not saying that that's impossible. I'm, in fact, I'm saying, my own experience gives me to believe that it's entirely true. What I'm saying is that on a philosophical level, if we want to actually be able to talk about this in some kind of intersubjective and intellectually productive way, we can't get very far when all we are left with every time we come to a serious philosophical kind of issue is to say that it's actually inaccessible knowledge and you just have to meditate on it. In fact, you know, when I say rationalistic, I don't see that as a reductive um, um, project at all. I mean, for me, rationalism is the way in which mind meets spirit. And when you take that to a, a very fine-grained level in the way that, for example, our, our former supervisor, Graham Priest, does in, in his his understanding of, of um, uh, paraconsistent logic and Buddhism, Buddhist metaphysics, then rationalism is really, really entering into stratospheric levels of understanding. And, and yet, and we need those levels. And it, does, it need not only be in the terms of, of, of logic and, and metaphysics, it can be in terms of ethics and various kinds of things. For me, rationalism is a tool which we can really afford to, to give a lot more credence to when we're dealing with the so-called inaccessible knowledge of Buddhist yogic acquisition or pratyaksha you know, yoga prachyaksha, and, and um, you know, unless they're working in tandem and as a genuine form of dialectic, again, as I said before, to simply say, oh, well, look, you know, that's just all inaccessible and we can't do anything about it, it's just, it's just a philosophical cop-out. Well, I, I take um, that point, but it sounded like earlier you were saying not that they work in tandem or in some kind mm -hmm. of dialectic, but that actually mm -hmm. you lop off the... No, 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 yeah. they're not exclusive of each other at all, not at all. I, I just think that rationalism can be developed and disciplined to a high degree, at which point understanding can become theoretically transrational and, and, and um, as you said, definitely expressive of, of Buddhist religious truths. But you simply can't insert essentially religious, religious heuristic metaphorical claims, which I think ultimately karma really does reduce to or, or even amount to, into what is a bona fide rationalistic project, which you have, for example, in high-level Mahayana metaphysics, whether it's Yogacara or Madhyamaka or Prasangika or whatever. Okay? And, I, and none of this is exclusive of the other. And I'm very, very concerned because I notice that quite a few of your questions do tend to frame this in either-or terms. I don't think it's either-or. I think almost in every case it's both and, um, and and I think that's what we need to focus on. I don't know if I fully really addressed what your concern was, but I mean I, I suppose as a nutshell that's that's where I'm at with it. Well, let me just respond to um, this notion of karma being. This actually, sorry, this actually does play directly into my second question to you. So maybe maybe we can return to karma after you've okay. answered the second question. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so look, my second question to you um, is, given your meditative experience, which you described earlier, how would you characterize the cognitive relation between metaphysical or conceptual understanding, which you've done in your philosophy degree, and your meditative understanding of the same cognitive content? That is to say, is meditation for you a properly cognitive activity or actually something else? <laughs> it's, uh, it's both. Uh-huh. Um, in, yeah, in my experience... The, again, there's maybe not so much of a dichotomy 
between them. In that, I mean, this is really more the Mahamudra approach to meditation, mm. which to some degree is about coming to attune to and understand, see clearly mm. what thoughts are, where they come from, where they go, and what they do. Beautiful, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it gets annoying to read about that, but to actually go into the task of examining and meditating deeply on the nature of thought, the nature of thinking, mm. of cognition, mm. uh, does reveal something about, a kind, you know, kind of inseparability mm. between the act of cognition and those more, I don't forget how you phrased it, but those more meditative experiences. Mm. They, they co-emerge mm. together in, in all sorts of ways. Okay, so when you're, when you're, in a sense, accessing certain kinds of meditative um, determinate truths or, 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 or even with us call it information, let us say, and we, we don't have to be grandiose about that, I'm not suggesting you have any Mahamudra realizations or anything, but is your apprehension of the nature of thought, for example, or the nature of that a current specific thought that you've just had, another thought about it? Or is it, or is it a kind of a form of conscious apprehension, self-conscious apprehension, indeed, which you would say has has gone into a different kind of, I don't know, I mean, a different kind of, uh, you know, ontology. Because I mean, for me, I'll just throw this at you. For me, meditation is is actually metacognitive, um, in as much as it's not really dealing with thoughts anymore, even though thoughts are its content, and as you say, the nature of thought per se is often its content. But the very power of meditation for me is that it's not just another thought about a thought. It's 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 a way of somehow somehow energetically, I would say, um, containing the very nature of thinking in itself, uh, which is where which is why you can actually do a lot of interesting conceptual work in meditation as well, mind you. I think there's a an incredible dialectic between philosophical um, thinking and and meditation as such. What, what, what would you, how would you respond to that? Sure, there's all sorts of things going on which cannot be reduced to the word cognition or the notion, especially of discursive or conceptual thought. Sure. Um, so one can speak of, I suppose, visions, mm -hmm. luminous visions of certain things, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether you call them thoughts or some other, put them in some other category, you could call them metacognitive as you did. Mm. I'd be fine with that. But a, a vision, a luminous vision, is still is still a content. Um, it's still a, a definite sort of mental object of some kind. Can you actually give me a bit more of a concrete sense of what what that kind of thing might be? I'm not sure I can because you know mm. we're talking about something that is going beyond discursive thought. So as soon as I try and put it into discursive thought, we get a long way away from what it is I would be attempting to describe. Um, sorry, I'm going. To, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to press you a little bit more on that because I, I think again that's a little bit of a, a, a cop out. If you're willing to say it's a luminous vision, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to accept that that's not a that's not a discursive um, item. But by the same token, you are identifying it as something. It's luminous and it's a vision. So is it a perceptual object? Is it a is it a, a sensation? Is it a feeling? Is it? Can you try to put 
some some empirical words to it. Just well, just let me make some because because I'm interested in luminous visions. I haven't I've only had a, kind of a few of them of what I think that might be. So I'm actually really interested in what you're saying. Okay, well let let me just then try and run through some of because that's just an example. That's one thing sure. that might occur is a sure. luminous vision. Okay. And to characterize them, well, they're all radically different, but mm-hmm. there's a sense mm-hmm. in which there's a, there's a kind of givenness to them, right? Which is how you distinguish it from something which is a mere mental construction. Because sometimes mm-hmm. one wants to construct those sorts of things, and so the mind kind of imagines. Yeah. And that's what sure. that's what tantra is a lot about. You know, you imagine yourself as the Edom mm-hmm. or so forth. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm talking about something distinct from that. I'm saying this is not the mind imagining. It's mm-hmm. something that is almost received. There's mm-hmm. a kind of mm-hmm. there needs to be a deep receptivity which mm-hmm. is uh, what is engendered by the meditation and when that occurs almost mm-hmm. without one wanting it or expecting it mm-hmm. a uh, you know a certain luminous vision will just naturally dawn and this I take to be at least in the Buddhist corpus um, mm-hmm. something we could roughly call the Sambhogakaya you know this sort of realm mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the awakened mm-hmm. display mm-hmm. Um, but that's very different from other meditative experiences which actually I would say are completely devoid of even subtle form so they're not um, mm-hmm. they don't it's not even light or color or sound or anything that is communicative mm-hmm. it's um, it's uh, you know you could use a term like bare awareness or a kind mm-hmm. of na- naked clarity something of that nature mm-hmm. um, which has a kind of intensity or potency about it which um, is completely irrefutable that I, I would use the word it's immutable and these are I, I would say rather more rather closer to the mark than the more luminous versions I was just talking about before when you're with sure. that, that experience of, of, of um, a kind of formless direct naked awareness whatever you want to call it there's a yes. there's an intensity and potency to that which, which is just completely irrefutable it, it's okay um, okay look look that's that's great and I might actually also I mean it sounds like a classical textbook <coughs> Tibetan Vajrayana kind of um, Phenomena, um, but well, I do. Want I don't pres- know if it I, is, I, you know. I, like, well, yeah, I, 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 I certainly don't want to classify it just in those simple terms. But I do want to press you on something again, and I, I want to do it in a way that doesn't repudiate anything of what you've just said. Sure. But there is a, there is a, an implicit philosophical problem, and it's this: um, you've used the word "given" and you've used the word "naturally occurring" and so on, and you've also said, though, at the same time, that, that it's possible to to kind of actually, um, maybe even unconsciously, construct certain kinds of internal phenomenal experiences and there is as you're probably aware a serious issue in the conflict between a kind of western continental phenomenological theory from Husserl and the kind of repudiation of that possibility both in American analytic um, uh, critiques of the myth of the given from Wilfred Sellers for example but also later on in um, post-structuralist Derridean critiques of the phenomenological given. Now, you're, you seem to be assuming rather blithely, I think, on a philosophical level, that such, you know, uh, givens of meditative, subjective, deep subjective and interior experience are in some sense, you've used the word immutable, uh, presumably indubitable, I don't know if that's what you mean, um, that they are kind of epistemic 
um, authoritative um, phenomena with which you can rest in absolute certainty and confidence that they have some kind of, mm, what would I say, some kind of objective status to your own mental process. And is it possible that, that, you know, for example, my supervisor Garfield at this moment is extremely skeptical about that whole possibility, both in Buddhist meditation, but in, in the phenomenology of mind as such. Um, and he, he would say, for example, that every phenomenological datum is profoundly vulnerable to a vertiginous metaphysical um, uncertainty and epistemic uncertainty, simply because there is no such thing as 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 a given that has some kind of indubitable epistemic status. It, everything is up for grabs and everything is questionable in terms of what, it, what it's ultimately signifying. And I think that for me is also a serious problem with a lot of Buddhist meditative um, claims. You know, a lot of people do make really quite extraordinary and amazing, interesting claims about what, what you know, meditative practice can potentially deliver. And I don't really know ultimately where all of that plays out or how we can cash that out in philosophical terms. Now, surely you're concerned about that as well. I mean, I, I, I hear the nature of, of the experience, but for me, I could only say, I know when meditative experience is delivering me something which I can trust when I have a, a full body sensational phenomenological kind of global experience, which puts me into, a, into an entirely different existential state. But the but the the epistemic status of that I don't know I, I don't know what that means I don't know whether that means nibbana is ultimately possible I don't know whether it means I'm actually understanding something maybe it just means that the chemicals are operating more differently in my brain because I've been sitting still and not not saying or thinking anything for a few hours Can you hear the distinction? Okay. In, in, in which case in which case the deliverances of deep meditation might just be explicable by purely neuroscientific and physicalist um, uh, criteria. Well, let me, and, and uh, we don't know. We don't know which is which. Let me give a short answer and a long answer. Okay. For the short answer, and I'm really ashamed to have to do this, but I'm going to quote Donald Trump. Go ahead. I don't care. <laughs> I really don't give a fuck what the analytic yeah. philosophers say. Okay. Uh, or what Garfield what, just says. Because you, you disagree or because you just don't care? Um, well, let me then move into the long answer. I mean, are you speaking as a philosopher or are you speaking as a, as a Buddhist rebel? Or as, both? As a Buddhist rebel philosopher. Okay, good. And in a way, the, 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 the desire to make all these things metaphysically questionable or mm. whether we can have big epistemic debates about the content of someone's phenomenological experience or not mm. I mean go for it I, I you know that's what I would say to someone like Garfield or whoever else that's fine you question as much as you want and perform your epistemic tasks and mm -hmm. criticize mm. that's your job mm. but what makes it true or important mm. or something to persevere with more deeply mm. from my own side mm. is a different mm range of concerns and questions mm -hmm. uh, it's not a philosophical project the, philosoph the philosophical project is to lead you into those sorts of experiences and then the meditative project is to deepen those experiences such that they become 
Look, but sure, surely, but that's a that's a classical Buddhist stance. But surely you agree that I'm not denying that. I'm I'm saying that once you once you once you're going into that genuine meditative discipline as you're describing, surely there's a feedback process with with the nature of your cognition and what you think about reality and whether you think nibbana is possible or does it still mean something or is it being confirmed? I mean, surely people engage in this stuff because they do actually have some guiding you know, intuitions or premises about what they're actually doing. I mean, I, th I think there is a, I really want to be straight with you about this. I think there is a fundamental distinction to be made between whether you're engaging in practice because you do entertain the possibility of nirvana or whether you're engaging in it for, for slightly different reasons. And it would seem to me to be intellectually responsible to ask yourself, well, okay, what, how does all this weigh up in the end? How do you cash out? the luminous visions and all the other experiences you're describing or, or, or are you literally saying you don't really you don't care about doing that? no personally i care very much and i suppose right. really this gets to the heart of maybe your first question hmm. but right at the beginning of our discussion yeah and the turn that i've made let's say further away from philosophy hmm. having to justify things with recourse to uh rationality and analysis and mm. criticism, mm. having to have everything form into a logically consistent argument. You know, and I suppose what I'm saying is that um, having these sorts of meditative experiences mm. Mm. for me is a, is a maturing, something that I didn't have when I was younger. Okay. And I can draw a continuity between how I was as a meditator or a practitioner when I was younger and how I am mm. now and I see that there's certain things that have matured mm. and so mm. what mm. that basically produces is a sense of um, confidence which I wouldn't otherwise have in the orthodox Buddhist corpus in the orthodox Buddhist message which yeah. is that these sorts of things are possible to uncover certainly not easy okay. it's more likely than not that you won't uncover them yeah, but it is okay. possible and because that possibility is there, it's worth having a look to see whether... Oh, look, I, I think we're on the same page there. I mean, I think we're on the same page. I mean, I would agree with that entirely. But I, I, I just, it seems to me to beg the question of, of where all this stuff, where, where all this is actually tending to in terms of your, you know, your metaphysical sense of the universe and what it actually means and whether nibbana is real, whether, you know, there is a post-mortem continuity of some sense of consciousness, whether we need to, I mean, I, for me, I mean, there's just no question about that. I, I want to know what happens post-mortem. I always um, had bracketed that question as, well, I don't have any sense one way or the other, so I don't know, so it's not something I'm going to contemplate. Um, really? Yeah, but uh, in more recent times, I've slided closer to a kind of more orthodox Buddhistic position. Um, okay. And I'll tell you why. Because, mm. um, and this gets back to the, the original kind of thought behind your question too, which is what am I, tr what am I getting out of all of this? Well, in the end, it's, it's the same thing that we're both aiming for, which is trying to understand the nature of reality and the nature of... Mm. Well, what's true about reality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and where I've ended up I suppose is that the answer to that is not found discursively can never be found discursively and it's in meditation alone where that might be achieved or not achieved and 
going back, I suppose, to the more Yogacharan point, the thing that is incredibly hard for people in the 21st century to countenance is mm. the, the very notion that there might be something immaterial, which is important in all of this. We want to call the mind immaterial, completely immaterial. Mm. Uh, that's something which now I'm going to put on the table and say, yeah, I think that's actually the case. Okay, well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm entirely sympathetic to everything you've just said, and now you're actually coming clean a little bit about, about, about what this amounts to. And um, I think that the last point that you've just made is probably one of the most critical points for Buddhism to grapple with. In, in its coming period, would you would you agree with that? I mean, the status of consciousness. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at the rise of uh, let's call it secular Buddhism and its relation to science, and yeah. all of the investigations that are going on with cognitive science and neuroscience and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and <coughs> you know, even including conversations with the Dalai Lama and so forth. Mm, eventually, mm, mm. sooner or later, they come across this exact moment. Indeed. And then you choose a side. Yeah. You're either a materialist or you're something like a dualist or some other form where you hold, yeah. maybe a monist, but yeah. you hold that um, there is something about consciousness mm. which is not explicable purely by recourse to a kind of physicalism. And mm. I suppose what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that somehow or other, I, you know, that is a huge thing in, in the secular in the secular world and in the world of modernity, that you shouldn't cross that line. That yeah. When all this said well, and done, well, well, you ought let, to be a materialist about the mind. Let's also be clear, though, that there's an, an awful lot of even Western so-called New Age post-secular thinking which would actually defy that. You know, I mean, I, I, I again, I think we, it's actually not as clear-cut as we as we might assume. Certainly in the academy, certainly in science and so on, what you're saying is true. But actually, I think a lot of people, like there's certainly a lot of Christians. Um, and certainly a lot of Hindus and certainly a lot of Muslims have a belief in a substantive soul, which, as we know, Buddhism doesn't, but it nevertheless does preserve a sense of post-mortem continuity of consciousness. So, look, Toby, we're just coming on an hour, and it's a pretty interesting position we've come to because I think we're both basically agreeing that there is a really serious um, a piece of truth to be hold, held onto there, which is the status of consciousness. And I'm quite happy to say that I'm a property dualist, um, along with a number of other interesting philosophers around the place. Um, whether or not that cashes out into a Yogacara and worldview, it probably doesn't. But certainly some form of non-reductive physicalism is, is for me, um, also completely compatible with Buddhist thinking. So can we agree on that and then maybe take a break and come back? Agree on what precisely? That, well, oh, agree, agree on, I suppose, that the, the, the metaphysical status of consciousness and the Buddhist understanding of that is probably one of the cornerstones for any, you know, as you were saying before, intervention into modernity and the false presuppositions of modernity. Well, absolutely, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. I mean, there's obviously more to be, to be said about that, um, but maybe we'll, we'll, we'll leave that to later on.